Open your Bibles to the book of Philemon. As this morning, we're going to finish our study of this short letter, Philemon. Philemon, we've been learning, is a letter about reconciliation. You have two men at odds, Philemon and Onesimus. They're divided in just about every way, physically, spiritually, economically, socially. And that division is reflected most in their status, seeing that Onesimus is Philemon's slave. But Philemon had become a Christian years back. Onesimus now has become a Christian, and that change alone should be enough to change everything. Think about it. What, what's a greater change of status? You go from being dirt poor to filthy rich overnight, or you go from being slave to free overnight. In the ancient world, that's a, a monumental change, but even still, it doesn't compare to the change that takes place at salvation. Have you truly grasped what actually changes when you come to true salvation? Your state of being changes. You go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Your nature changes. You go from being corrupt and depraved to born again and made new. Your guilt changes. You go from having this infinite sin debt that you cannot repay to being completely forgiven. And then, of course, your destiny changes. You go from being bound for judgment in hell to being destined for heaven. All this changes and more at salvation. And much of scripture was written to tell you this, to pop the hood and give you a little behind the scenes look at what actually happened to you when you came to a genuine faith in Christ. And then there's one more change to speak of, and that's your relationships. Before you were cut off from God without hope in the world, separated But in salvation, you're reconciled, adopted, and even united to Christ. And flowing from that change is a drastic change in our human relationships, where sin rules, division rules. That's why those in the world will find a million things over which to divide. Race, gender, status, wealth, career, likes and dislikes, even sports teams. But in the body of Christ the church, all those labels are are superseded by uh, other labels, namely Christian, brother, sister. And the tie that binds is greater than all dividing forces. So going back to Philemon and Onesimus, now they're, they're both members of Christ's church. And that change alone should completely change and redefine the relationship. And should lead to a powerful reconciliation. The witness of the church is at stake here, along with the experience of joy in the fellowship. To be sure, we are united in Christ, but the church only experiences the joy of that unity when it puts aside petty differences and puts on Christ. We have to live the way of the Lord out. And that's why Paul writes this letter. Onesimus stands ready. He's been saved. He's been humbled. He's repentant. He's ready to do his part and reconcile. As we learned, he most likely ran away from Philemon and and likely stole from him in the process. But now he's ready to, to go back, to face any consequences there might be, to seek restoration. Philemon, for his part, doesn't even know Onesimus has been found or or has become a Christian. Thankfully, Philemon is already known to be a man of faith and love. But now Paul writes in advance of sending Onesimus back to him just to make sure he will do the right thing. He must not 
take revenge or exact vengeance on Onesimus. That it's an unacceptable way to treat a brother. And said he must receive him, forgive, and restore. And Paul is writing this little letter to push Philemon in this direction to make sure he goes the way of love, which preserves the fellowship. And that's why Paul cares so much. You may wonder, like, why, why does Paul care? He's the third party here. Why is he going to so much trouble to see these two men reconciled? Why even bother? Why even send Onesimus back? Why not just let, let it all go? But Paul, unlike you might say most Christians today, he had a, an extremely high view of the fellowship. He saw the church not as a building or an event or a place, but as a fellowship. It's just the common life we have in Christ. It's shared life in Christ. And he did not want to see that tarnished or diminished. Consider Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul himself says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul knew these words. Paul wrote these words. Paul took seriously these words. This is part of us walking in a worthy manner. We are seeking to even work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit, this fellowship, this bond of fellowship that Christ died in part to give us. We're called to preserve it. Not let sin and self win the day and divide us. This is hard work, though. There's a cost involved to enjoy such fellowship. The joy and the power of the church's unity comes with a price tag. The Lord Christ himself, of course, paid the ultimate price in laying down his life, paying for our sins. He removed the the barrier of sin, which divides us, us from God, us from one another, But for us now to enjoy the fellowship he created, we've got to pay a little price as well. That price is humility. You have to die to self and to pride. You have to crucify your pride. If you're going to live in fellowship, this kind of fellowship with others, this is how, as Paul says, you must show tolerance for one another in love. And so far in Philemon, we've seen Paul base his appeal to him in love. Love must compel Philemon to do the right thing. And Paul could order Philemon to release Onesimus, to reconcile with him. But, but you know, forced reconciliation is not really reconciliation. Rather, he appeals to the love of Christ in Philemon's heart to just now see Onesimus through the lens of the gospel And therefore to receive him no longer as a slave, but as his brother. That right there is how you preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Seeing one another through Christ. Last time we went through verses 10 through 16, where Paul begins his appeal to Philemon. Really culminates in verse 16, where he urges Philemon to receive Onesimus. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Overall, this is Paul playing peacemaker. 
using not authority, but love to compel Philemon to reconcile with Onesimus. Today, we're going to look at the remaining verses, verses 17 through 25, where Paul drives home his appeal. And as we do so, just just in observing Paul, we're going to see more of what it takes to preserve fellowship. What it takes to preserve the fellowship. And that's something we really need to learn. We need to be willing to do whatever it takes to preserve the fellowship the Lord gave to us. That's for the testimony of Christ's name and for the joy of Christ's church. Both are at stake if we do not preserve the fellowship. And so I hope you'll be compelled to just pay up, to pay the price tag, to pay what it takes that we might enjoy the fullness of fellowship we have in Christ. So let's see what it takes. First, it takes risk. Verse 17, it takes risk. Let's carry on here. Read as we go. He says in verse 17, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now, here, finally, we get the first command of the letter. Now, back in verse 10, Paul said he's, he's writing this letter to make an appeal on behalf of Onesimus. But then he didn't actually say what the appeal was. Like, okay, what do you want Philemon to do in regards to Onesimus? But he didn't say. Instead, he, he spends his time paving the way, clearing obstacles from the path so that when he gets around to telling Philemon what he wants him to do, his heart will be in the right place. He'll be ready to receive and hopefully just listen to what Paul has to say. Well, now Paul is finally getting around to making the appeal. So what's the appeal? It comes with three imperatives. This is the first, to accept him. It means to receive, to take him into your company. Paul is appealing to Philemon not to turn Onesimus away, but to receive him back. In what manner, though? In a Roman society would have Philemon, if he's going to receive him, to receive him with brutality. You better make him pay and teach him a lesson that this slave would never run away again. That's what the Romans would tell him to do, receive him with harshness. That's not an option for the Christian, though. So Paul advocates for a different type of reception. How does he say he is to be received? In verse 17, he says, accept him as you would me. Basically, he's telling him to treat Onesimus the same way he would treat Paul. So if Paul showed up on his doorstep, how would he treat Paul? Probably pretty well. Well, treat Onesimus now in the exact same way. Receive him in that way. Paul tells Philemon he needs to do this. He says, if You regard me a partner. You see how he makes it conditional. If you regard me a partner, you're going to do this. You need to do this. This word partner, koinonos, means companion, partaker, fellow worker. It's related to koinonia, the fellowship, that common life we have in Christ. And Paul and Philemon were partners in service of Christ. But Paul is now putting that on the line for the sake of Onesimus. You see, for the sake of preserving the fellowship, he's risking his personal relationship with Philemon. He's putting it on the line. 
if Philemon did not accept Onesimus after all Paul is saying here, it's going to open up a huge rift between Paul and Philemon. That's not what he wanted, right? But Paul is confident Philemon will accept Onesimus. For one, he uses what's called a first-class condition in the Greek, which means that it's assuming the condition will be met. In addition, you know, Paul has already been preparing Philemon to think this way. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed, but throughout this letter, it's short, but Paul has strongly identified himself with Philemon. Now, back in verse 1, he said, they're beloved brothers, they're fellow workers. Paul thanks God for him personally and speaks the best about his character. But at the same time, throughout this letter, Paul has also very strongly identified with Onesimus. He calls him his child in the faith. He's proven so useful to the ministry that now to Paul, he's a fellow worker. Paul even goes so far as to, as to say he's his very heart. In all, Paul views Onesimus no longer a slave, but a beloved brother. And so do you see this, the circle of brotherhood Paul has created? Paul and Philemon are beloved brothers, he says. And Paul and Onesimus, they too are beloved brothers. So what do you think that makes Philemon and Onesimus? They now are likewise just the same beloved brothers. Paul's trying to show them how intertwined they are. And that's just the nature of the fellowship. Like verse 16 said, Philemon must now come to regard Onesimus as he is, no longer a slave, but a beloved brother. And so, therefore, verse 17 literally says, therefore, if you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. And Paul is now making explicit this identification he's been building throughout. Like, if we're really in this together, if we're really you know, partners for the sake of the gospel, then, then you're going to do this. You, you have to accept Onesimus as your brother. This is just how the fellowship works. And look, overall, this is still pretty gentle. Paul's not being heavy-handed. But at the same time, he is, with these words, he is still throwing down the gauntlet. He's doing it in the kindest manner possible. With great gentleness, he takes the gauntlet and just gently lays it on the floor in front of Philemon. But, but it's there nonetheless. This is it. Paul has put his relationship on the line for the sake of this reconciliation. Would you do that? In an effort to see two people reconciled in Christ, would you put your relationship with one of those parties on the line? Just believing it, it's the right thing to do. Reconciliation in Christ matters that much. And when someone is out, acting out of accord with the fellowship, relationships are at stake. And it's not the loving thing to do to ignore someone else's sin. That disrupts the fellowship. Again, we're called to preserve the unity of the fellowship and sin has no part in that. And so the loving thing to do is not to ignore someone's sin, but sometimes it's to to throw down the gauntlet with great gentleness, but there comes a time where you might have to rebuke someone or to call them to repent or, or at least urge them to do the right thing. The Lord himself directed us to do this. You recall Matthew 18, 15, if If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. 
why would you ever do that? That sounds hard. That sounds risky. Your relationship with that person might suffer if you actually like go and show them their sin. Who would, who would do that? But the thing is like sin has no place in this fellowship Christ has created. And so guarding one another and, and seeking the restoration of one another is the most loving thing to do. We're not called to, to bring down the hammer and express wrath toward the other. The goal is to restore them to the fellowship. If they're wandering in sin, our love compels us to go seek to restore them. Now here in Philemon though, Philemon doesn't need to be rebuked. He's not, he's not done anything wrong yet. But Paul is just laying down the challenge in advance to do the right thing. Relationships are on the line. His place in the fellowship is on the line. And sometimes such risks must be taken to preserve the fellowship. Sometimes it takes risk. Secondly, it takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. It's easy to, to stand on the sidelines, tell other people what to do. Like for, for the coach to bark orders at the player or berate them when they fail. But he's, he's not playing. He's not sweating. He's not working. And eventually players will come to resent the overbearing coach. But Paul shows here he actually has some skin in the game. He wants to preserve the fellowship so much, he refuses to be a bystander. I mean, look how he is willing to sacrifice to see them reconciled. He carries on in verse 18. He says, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. We see here another condition. If Onesimus has wronged you in any way, this has in mind an injury or, or damage done. Could be physical, could be emotional. Here it's likely monetary. This word for he owes you anything, that's, that's a term often used to speak of indebtedness. It's from this that we infer that Onesimus likely stole from Philemon as he was running away. Whatever this debt is though, Paul says he's going to see it resolved. How? By taking it on himself. He says, charge that to my account. I'll cover it. And he means it. Verse 19, he goes on. He says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. And sometimes Paul dictated his letters to a secretary who wrote them down. But he always included, you might say, like, like a verbal signature, letting the hearers know all of the content was coming from him. And that includes this promise. I will repay it. That's like an IOU. Repay is another legal term referring to damages being paid off. And Paul is saying like, I'll do that myself. Sometimes we, we say things we don't really mean because we're fairly certain we won't actually have to do them. Like maybe you have an older brother and he's filthy rich. And when he comes into town, he always treats you and your family to a nice expensive dinner. It's very nice, very thankful. One time you feel kind of obligated and you say, you know, tonight I'd be happy to pay for dinner. But that's not true. In reality, you would not be happy to pay for dinner. You don't want to fork over two, three hundred dollars. Just say that because you know there's no way he's going to let you pay. But Paul here is not just saying he will pay Onesimus's debt. He really means it. In this letter, it's like a signed blank check. He's like, just put Onesimus's debt on the line. I will pay it. 
And we get the impression that if Paul was really called on this, he would seek to pay it. The, the honor and integrity of his word are at stake. But at the same time, Paul knew it would be silly if Philemon were to actually try and make him pay. Because if Philemon was a man of honor himself, he would be the one to simply cancel Onesimus' debt toward him. Why? Because Philemon, too, is a debtor. And he owes the Apostle Paul a much greater debt. Look at verse 19 again. Paul says, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention that you owe me your own self as well. I love this tactic and rhetoric where you say you're not going to say something, but of course, thereby you say the thing. Like a boss talking to his employees about their performance, and he tells them, like, listen, guys, I'm not going to say you're going to lose your Christmas bonus if you, your numbers don't improve. I'm not going to say that, but your numbers need to improve. It's like, what? Well, you just said it. Like, But here, Paul, being the spiritual father of Philemon as well, he's, he's subtly reminding him that, that Philemon owes Paul a debt, a much bigger debt that he cannot repay. Now, look, we know God is sovereign in salvation, but Philemon should honor the man of God the Lord used to bring him to salvation. And the least he can do is heed Paul's appeal and, and pay it forward, you might say, which would look like just releasing Onesimus from his debt. And I want to direct you really to, to the lengths, though, at which Paul is prepared to go to preserve the fellowship. He's willing to sacrifice his own well-being for their reconciliation. In a sense here, Paul is emulating Christ. Jesus came and he sacrificed himself to broker peace between God and man. And Paul is likewise, in a sense, sacrificing himself to broker peace between these two parties. Of course, he's not making atonement for them, but he actually does use atonement language. That word for charge that to my account. That's the same word for impute or imputation, where our sin is imputed to Christ, this transfer of debt so as to release someone. That's what Paul is doing for these two. And simply put, it's only right for us to be like our Lord, where we are more willing to make payment on someone else's debt rather than demand payment on someone else's debt. And of course, that looks like forgiveness. We're not called to make atonement and die for people in that sense, obviously, but we are called to to just forgive. In the same manner as we've been forgiven, we release people from their their debt to us by forgiveness. This Christ-like, undeserved, but unconditional, you're released. Forgiveness. If you're ever given the opportunity to do that, to, to make a payment on someone else's debt, to sacrifice yourself even, Do that, especially if it will preserve peace and preserve the fellowship. It takes sacrifice. Thirdly, it takes love. I mean, just think, in the ancient world, very few people would be willing to take on the debt of someone else that two others could be reconciled. And I think few, if any, would do this for a slave in ancient Rome. But the love of Christ compels us, as Paul goes on in verse 20. He says, yes, brother, 
Let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. With this verse here, Paul is bringing the, the body of this short letter to a close. He's reminding Philemon one more time that they're in a circle of brotherhood now. Onesimus is part of that circle. And Philemon would be blessing Paul if he treated Onesimus that way. Specifically, he says, refresh. And this is the third command, the third imperative given in Paul's appeal. Verse 17, he told Philemon to accept Onesimus. Verse 18, he told him to charge his debt to Paul's account. And now verse 20, he tells him to refresh his heart. These are all imperatives, but they don't really come across as commands. These are appeals given in love, calling on Philemon to show love. In fact, verse 20 really brings things full circle. If you recall, back in verse 7, still part of the introduction, but do you remember how Paul spoke of Philemon's character? Look back at verse 7. What was Philemon known for? Earlier, Paul said, For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Philemon is a man of love who refreshed the hearts of the brethren. Did you notice, though, in verse 20, Paul repeats three key words from verse 7. Brother, refresh, and heart. All the same words in the Greek. What he's saying is this. He's already established that Philemon has the reputation of being a man of love who refreshes the hearts of the brethren by his loving kindness, by his generosity. He's already known to refresh, give rest, give encouragement to the hearts of the brethren. And so now as Paul wraps it up, especially with Philemon being so indebted to Paul for his salvation, he's just calling on him to to one more time. Refresh the hearts of the brethren in his love. Specifically, refresh Paul's heart. Is he too not a brother? Should you not likewise refresh his heart? And so let him give comfort and rest to Paul's heart over Onesimus. Paul called Onesimus his very heart. If Philemon was not willing to forgive and reconcile, that would rend Paul's heart over Onesimus. No, he's calling him, refresh my heart. Give, give rest to my heart over this, this desire he had to see the fellowship preserved, not torn apart. It's like Paul said in Philippians 2 verse 2, he called the church to make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Shepherds especially can't rest when the sheep are at odds. But I hope you realize all of our joy, the church's mutual joy is at stake When brothers are unreconciled, preserving the fellowship of the body of Christ takes love. Our love for the Lord and our love for one another must be genuine. And this will test you. Who or what do you love most? Yourself, your pride, your ego. Are you unwilling to deny self in order to forgive and to reconcile? Or does the love of Christ compel you, as hard as it might be, to show his love to others and leading you to even forgive and be at peace? This is what Philemon needed to do 
in Christ, Paul says in verse 20, this, this giving of love is only fitting for those who are in Christ. Number four now, it takes trust. What does it take to preserve this fellowship? It takes trust. Carrying on to verse 21, he says, Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Now, nearing the end here, Paul expresses confidence in Philemon, more specifically confidence in his obedience. Paul trusts he'll do the right thing. Now, Paul mentioning obedience here might seem a little out of place. He's not been issuing heavy commands. He said that back in verse 8. He's not ordering him to do anything. He's appealing to him in love. But this Greek word for obedience is a little more flexible than the English word. It doesn't necessarily mean he's been issuing heavy commands. This has been an appeal in love. But I tend to think Paul drops the, the O word. as just another subtle reminder that there's only one right course of action here. There's only one right thing to do for Philemon. Paul's not forced it down his throat. He's presented it. But I think he mentions obedience that he knows. Obedience to the love of Christ means that there's really no option here. The love of Christ commands this. And here Paul is trusting him to do that. He's believing the best and putting his confidence in his brother Philemon to do the right thing. In fact, Paul trusts him so much that he believes he'll even go beyond what he's asking to do more. That's an interesting verse that's long begged the question, like, what, what did Paul have in mind when he says even more? See that verse 21? I know you'll do even more than what I say. How did Paul expect Philemon to go above and beyond in his treatment of Onesimus? There are a few options, but I believe Paul is expecting Philemon to go above and beyond and go all the way in releasing Onesimus from slavery. Paul expressed a desire for Onesimus to be by his side. He wanted him as a a partner in the work of the ministry. And so when Paul eventually was going to show up at Colossae, he probably wanted to take Onesimus with him as a new part of the, the support team. And also verse 16 is a strong verse where he tells Philemon to receive him no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Those are strong words. And when you have two people who regard one another as brothers, as equals, it really does spell the end of the evils of slavery. The brutal treatment, the complete subjugation of another's will, the devaluing of human life. None of these are compatible with brotherhood in Christ. That's incompatible with the fellowship And so the evils of slavery should not persist as people come to grasp their true fellowship in Christ. Now I should mention though that still throughout the years, people have wondered and questioned of Philemon and of this book of the Bible. Like, why did Paul not go further in this letter and outright call for the abolition of slavery? Or at the very least, why did he not make it more clear to Philemon that he should release Onesimus as his slave? Like, why not go further? And let me briefly address that. A little background. You know, slavery in ancient Rome was pervasive. Up to one in five Romans were slaves. It was an entrenched fact of life. The Roman economy was, was built on slavery. Now, you have to keep in mind, Roman slavery was not like American slavery. You cannot think them the same. 
Roman slavery was not race-based at all. It was also not seen as a permanent condition. Manumission was a real possibility. Also, slaves were not like a shackled lower class. They occupied all classes. Your doctor or your school teacher could be a slave, and you wouldn't even know it by looking at them. Accordingly, not all slaves wanted release. Many fared a lot better than freemen living in poverty were starving to death. Think about the slave revolts of ancient Rome, and they never had as their goal the abolition of slavery. They just wanted to become the new masters. Still, though, the the brutal treatment, the subjugation of, of the will, and the viewing of humans as less valuable, no matter what, those are not compatible with Christ. So, why didn't the New Testament writers advocate a social reform crusade against slavery? Because indeed, they never did. And so many have asked, why not? Well, for several reasons. For one, it it would have fallen on deaf ears. As we said, slavery by the Romans was not viewed as a big social evil. Many slaves had their own slaves. Arguing against slavery in the ancient world would be like arguing against the use of cars today. Just no one would listen. But the primary reason arguing for social reform in itself would be just utterly futile. Arguing just for social reform, the New Testament writers knew, is is futile. Why is it that Christ himself and the apostles, they never argued for social reform? What did they do? They just preached Christ and him crucified. Like, why is that? Because they understood reforming social evils solves nothing. Because it does not solve the problem of the human heart. Where do social evils come from? They come from humans. People who are ruled by depraved, sinful hearts. That's the real problem and you can't reform that. Social evils need to be changed. Of course, from slavery to abortion, both of which ruled in ancient Rome. But leading a protest or a crusade like won't do that, won't change that. It's futile. Look at America. Slavery was abolished, which obviously is a very good thing, but did that end the unjust and brutal treatment of African Americans? It did not magically go away because sin is still entrenched in human hearts. We want to see real social change where society reflects God's righteousness, but that does not come about by reformation. It only comes about by transformation. And what power is there to transform hearts? There's only one power for that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is God's own power to change people. That's how someone's beliefs and worldview, their prejudice, their hatred, it can be changed overnight through new birth. Christ himself said his kingdom is not of this world. We want his kingdom righteousness to be reflected in this world. But that's why Christ and his apostles simply preached the gospel of the kingdom, because that's how you're going to turn the world upside down. Problem with activism, if you want to engage in activism, you do no wrong. It's simply that it does not go far enough. It doesn't do enough. It is powerless in itself to change hearts. Only Christ's gospel can do that. We see that reflected here in Philemon. 
Now, Paul here in this letter, he's merely dealing with the situation at hand. This is a short personal letter. He's not trying to change all of Roman society in 25 verses. But in applying the gospel of Christ to this situation, it actually changes everything. It lays the axe at the foot of the tree of slavery because it elevates these men to see each other, see each other through the lens of Christ, not as slave master, but as brother brother. And as they treat one another as brothers, which Christ enables them to do, what is left of the evils of slavery? The apostles wanted not social reformation, but social transformation, God's kingdom righteousness lived out. That's why they preached Christ and him crucified. And don't forget, this Jesus left heaven, came to earth, Philippians 2, took on the form of what? Literally, it says a slave, doulos. He took on the form of a slave, and then he died a slave's death on the cross. Execution reserved mostly for slaves. He did that. Why? To redeem us who were enslaved to sin. To transform us, to give us new hearts, finally free from all sorts of evils. It's only in the way of Christ that any individual and therefore any nation has any hope to see true change and righteousness come. Well, time will stop us from going any further, but as I wanted to go further, reflecting back, you know, when I preached through Colossians 3.22 just a couple months ago, which deals with slavery again, I basically took about half the sermon, 30 minutes, to address this issue in much more depth. So I think for now, if you want to take that further I'll just point you back to that Colossians 3.22 sermon. For now, we need to keep moving. So let's move on. We're almost done. Number five, it takes accountability. What it takes to preserve this fellowship. Number five, it takes accountability. Verse 22, as he's wrapping up, he says, At the same time also, prepare me a lodging. For I hope that through your prayers, I will be given to you. Trust in one another is important for preserving the fellowship. In love, you should believe the best about one another. But at the same time, we still have the sinful flesh. We have sinful desires within us. So we don't, we don't always do the right thing. We don't always do what we should. And that's why... Preserving the fellowship sometimes also takes accountability, which is all about just helping one another do the right thing. We must provide encouragement and exhortation to help one another follow through in serving the Lord. You see this dynamic of the fellowship reflected in Hebrews 3.13, which says, Be encourage one another day after day, so long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I do believe Paul is, is kind of slyly heading down this road in verse 22. This is technically the fourth and final command to prepare a lodging. It's not part of his main appeal. But I believe Paul is skillfully working accountability into his appeal. And he's telling Philemon, after all this, to prepare him a lodging. With the obvious implication that he is intending to visit. And as he visits, he will very clearly be able to tell if Philemon listened to his appeal. This is basically Paul saying, you know, by the way, I'm, 
I'd probably come check up on you. See what you did. And at the moment, of course, Paul's still in prison. He's awaiting trial before Caesar. But like in Philippians, he expresses confidence he will be released very soon. And so he asks Philemon to add to those prayers that he will be released for the gospel. But see here that the threefold pressure this puts on Philemon. For one, he knows Paul now is going to come. He's going to personally check up on him. Two, he's told to pray for Paul's release that he might come visit. That prayer would eat at Philemon's conscience if he was unwilling to forgive Onesimus. And then three, don't forget, the whole church is hearing this letter. And back in verse two, he, he addressed this also to the whole church. And here in verse 22, the, the call to prayer, he goes back to the plural. It's for the whole church. The whole church is being invited into this accountability. All eyes now especially at the end here, that they're put back on Philemon. The, the whole church is going to be watching him to see, like, so what are you going to do with that? You just got your own letter from the Apostle Paul. Like, what do you do? But that type of accountability is not a bad thing. It, it's a good thing. Accountability is God's mercy. It's giving us another tool in our arsenal to fight sin. We need the sanctified, godly pressure of others to not be deceived by sin. I'll say that again. We need the sanctified, godly pressure of others to not be deceived by sin. I need that. You need that. And the church is meant to carefully, lovingly supply it. This would be then a chance for Philemon to encourage the whole church to refresh their hearts yet again by being a source of unity and an example of Christ. To do otherwise would deepen rifts and propagate prejudice. God wants us in the church to graciously help one another see their sin, especially when sin has crept into someone's blind spot. Even better, he wants us to encourage one another from even letting sin enter the picture. Again, don't forget, this is for our mutual joy. This is how our joy is made complete when sin is put away from us. And trust me, sometimes all it takes is for one member to foster and guard and protect their sin for it to cause a lot of grief and trouble for the whole body. You don't want that. And we're called to peace and joy in our fellowship. And often it takes accountability to get there. It's part of the price tag. A couple more to go here, two more. Number six, it takes partnership it takes partnership. We're squarely in the conclusion of this short letter now. Paul wraps things up with some farewell greetings. Verse 23. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. We've seen all these names before, just a few months ago, as this farewell greeting is almost identical to that in Colossians, as Paul wrote Colossians Philemon together. Their companion letters. And so in Colossians, we spent a lot of time looking at all these names in detail, going over the biblical background of these men. Again, we won't do that here for time. You can get that in Colossians. But in short, this list of men, these were all, at the time, Paul's fellow workers. They're there in Rome with Paul, ministering for the gospel. And this just goes to show, Paul, while he's writing the letter, he's not alone. He's not alone in his concern for the fellowship. 
he's representing many others, and they all care about the strength of the Colossian church. They all want to see Philemon do the right thing. All ministry is done in partnership, and preserving the fellowship is no different. You can't leave this work just to the few, to the, the elders, the pastors, the teachers, to try and hold people together. That, that's just not going to work. All members of the church have to be equally concerned to stick together, to keep the fellowship together. Imagine a couple who had seven kids, and that turned into 20 grandkids. They're always together. They're enjoying time to one another, have big family gatherings. They have a really tight family culture, and it's a wonderful thing. But then that couple passes away, and it's up to the siblings then to, to keep the family traditions alive. But none of them want to except one. This one sibling wants to, to keep gathering. She's fighting to keep the family together. But they don't really want to, you know, the plane tickets, the expense. They don't want to keep it up. And therefore, over time, what's going to happen? I mean, they're just going to drift apart. They'll see each other less and less and less and drift apart. But if all seven siblings were equally committed to, to keeping the family together, if they all wanted to, they'd make it work. If there's a will, there's a way. They, they would sacrifice for the sake of their little family unity. And likewise, in the church, everyone has to be partnered up with the mission of the church. And that includes seeing the vital importance of the fellowship. All must be willing to do what it takes to keep the family of God together. All must be willing to pay the price and do the hard work to preserve the fellowship. And I hope that includes you. Are you willing to, to pay the price to, to be a partner, a force that keeps the church together? Do you refuse to be that force that pulls apart, but rather you resolve to be a force that draws together. That's what it takes. And lastly, number seven, it takes grace. To finish off in verse 25. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace opens the letter. Grace closes the letter. It's a typical conclusion for, for Paul. But it provides a needed final word and just a final thought planted, I think, in Philemon's mind. You know, on a human level, what he's asking Philemon to do, truly, without exaggeration, was unheard of in the ancient world. He's calling him to deny self, pride, selfish interest, to forgive, to reconcile, and then receive as a brother all of this for a runaway slave. There's no example of that in the ancient world. But the fellowship of Christ demands it. Humanly, because of our indwelling sin, it can be hard. Forgiveness is hard work. But grace received is meant to turn into grace extended. The, the overwhelming grace we've received in Christ is more than sufficient to empower you to show grace to others, to forgive and reconcile. The grace of God in Christ is what formed this fellowship. Our fellowship is because of his blood. And as you have received that saving and sustaining grace, you are meant to then daily turn it around and extend it to others. No fellowship will survive without grace. We're still sinners until Christ returns or we go to be with him. We're still going to have indwelling sin. That sin continues to be a force of division. It just will happen. It happens in marriages, happens in churches. 
We're still sinners. They will divide. And no, no union will survive without grace. We are treating one another not as they deserve, but you're treating them as the Lord has treated them through grace, through mercy, through forgiveness. Will you pay up though? Will you pay the price tag? Maybe it's more than you think you can afford this fellowship, but God's grace is sufficient to you. And if you've truly received his grace in Christ, you should be willing to pay up. Where might you fall short? In risk, in sacrifice, in love, in trust, in accountability, in partnership, in grace. Seek God's grace to grow and pursue peace for the sake of the fellowship. You know, we've seen these peacemaking principles here in Philemon. We've seen what it takes to preserve peace and that's all good. But now you have to actually like apply it. You need to see reconciliation in your own relationships from your spouse to the, the other members of your church. Now it's your turn. You can't control other people, but you can control yourself. So, so just do that. So far as it depends on you, pay the price tag. How might you have contributed to conflict with others in the past? What must you do to make it right? To forgive, to seek forgiveness, to repent, to reconcile. You take the first step and you pay up. Don't harden your heart. Maybe you're embittered because in the past never worked or never went anywhere. But remember, the main goal here is simply to honor the Lord in doing what is right. And the Lord honors those who put him first. So, so honor him. Peace is worth it. That's true in marriage. It's true in the church. And we know that, that the power of our witness and the strength of our joy are directly correlated to the degree of our unity. I'll say that one more time, that the strength or the power of our witness and the strength of our joy are directly correlated to the degree of our unity. So just be stretched in your love for one another in this church. That our fellowship in Christ might be preserved. That our joy might be made full. That the world might know that the, the true God is among us. In the end, Philemon, or for Philemon, we are left to believe that Philemon himself was willing to pay the price for reconciliation. In one sense, we're left to wonder because we have no verse in scripture that actually tells us what Philemon did. We don't know what he did in scripture. Did he receive and release Onesimus? We don't know, but it's almost unimaginable to think that this personal letter to Philemon would have been copied and preserved and accepted by all the churches if he didn't. The fact that Philemon has survived alongside Colossians and was recognized as canon by the churches, I think says enough. I do believe, I think we have to believe Philemon paid up. There is an interesting church tradition that, that might confirm this. In 110 AD, the church father Ignatius of Antioch was sentenced to death for Christ. He's going to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena in Rome. And on the way to Rome, he was allowed to talk to and minister to other church leaders. And he writes about meeting the bishop of Ephesus and what was his name. His name was Onesimus. We're left to wonder, you know, this is some 50 years later. Could it, could it really be the same Onesimus from Philemon? 
It technically could if Onesimus was a young man when Paul found him. He might be 70 or 80 at that time. But if so, uh, what a testimony to Onesimus's transformation and evidently Philemon's pursuit of reconciliation. We, of course, can't say for sure, but we can say if it is true, it wouldn't be surprising because that's how God's grace works. It transforms hearts. It changes lives. It brings peace. None of us are worthy of this life-changing fellowship we have in Christ, fellowship with God and then fellowship with one another. But his grace draws us in and draws us together. And so may we all then, by the same grace, be willing to pay whatever it takes to preserve this fellowship. Our God in heaven, we, we pray you help us to do just that this morning, to pay the price and pay what it takes to preserve our fellowship, to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There's only one Lord, one church, one faith, one baptism. You've made us one people with one Lord and head and savior. Lord, just as you are three yet one, you call us to be many yet one at the same time. We, we are bound to reflect your glory in our oneness. Church's unity and our fellowship is no small thing. Our gathering is no mere tradition. And there's power in this fellowship. There's joy in this fellowship. The world will know Christ is true and God is among us through the depth of our fellowship. And, and we taste the joys of heaven when we have fullness of fellowship. That only happens, though, when sin does not reign in our presence. It does sometimes. Sin remains until Christ returns. We are sinners. Lord, forgive us for those times where, whether it's in our marriage or in our church body, we've let sin win the day to divide to lead to unreconciliation, to lead to division. And we felt the hurt that brings. It is not good. But compel us to pursue the path of love, to pay this price tag and and to put those differences aside, to show grace, forgive, seek forgiveness, do what we must to reconcile. Help us to do that in this church, that there would be no unreconciled brothers or sisters here. Again, Lord, we know that will only strengthen our witness, magnify our joy, and honor your name. And ultimately, for the honor of your name, we want to do this. Teach us these lessons. Convict us from this little letter of Philemon. May we take them to heart. Keep them with us. And we too would be peacemakers and and men and women who reflect Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.